0: A special edition of EU Confidential is coming to you from the World Economic Forum in Davos this week, and it gets started right after this short message.
1: Today's episode is presented by Cisco, the worldwide leader in technology and power behind our internet for the last 35 years. Leveraging technology for good, their people are united behind one purpose, to power an inclusive future for all.
2: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or
3: sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
4: We have to stop waiting for the Americans all the time to lead, and uh, I think this is a great opportunity for the European countries to take the leadership. And we see a new resolve over the last several weeks to stand up to Russia, but we need to make bolder steps.
5: Welcome to EU Confidential, a special edition coming to you this week from the World Economic Forum in Davos. I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent and author of the EU Influence Newsletter. The voice you heard just now was Paul Grod, president of the World Ukrainian Congress, making the case to EU leaders gathered here to take a stronger stand against Russia. If you've been following along all week, you know that's been one of the key discussions we've been tracking during our special podcasts from this prestigious, or some would say notorious, gathering of financial titans, political leaders, and ambitious innovators in the Swiss Alps. One of those political leaders, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, addressed the forum on its final day. And
3: then there is the European Union, which is finally beginning to convert its geoeconomic weight into geopolitical influence. That is what we mean by European sovereignty. Our
5: panel will talk about Scholz's speech and other key takeaways from Davos. Then we'll hear more about how the Ukrainian diaspora is keeping up the pressure from Paul Grodd. After that, we'll switch gears a bit. We'll do a quick COVID check with Welcome Trust Chief Jeremy Farrar. Next, we'll have an intense but important conversation with Nobel Peace Prize laureate Nadia Murad. Just a heads up on that one, we'll be talking about sexual violence in war. We'll close on a more hopeful note, talking to the founder of a company trying to reduce food waste and plastic use at the same time. But first, let's bring in our team from Politico here in Davos. Okay, so I am here with a slightly diminished, (laughs) both in numbers and in energy, Politico team. We have our editor, Jamil Anderlini. Hi, Sarah. And Suzanne Lynch is also joining me, so great to be still here. Indeed, it is the last day of Davos, and they're still making news, though. We had one last important person coming to talk here. Suzanne, you went to see it. Who was it?
2: Yeah, it was the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. He's, as we said before, one of the only big political figures, you know, one of the most high profile. So I was curious. I thought maybe most people had left at that point um, because he was like the last big speaker. But it was a pretty full hall. And look, it was nothing earth shattering, but um, he did, uh, as expected, he addressed the issues of the war in Ukraine. He said that there will be no dictated peace and Ukraine would not accept that and neither would, would
6: Germany. Es wird keinen Diktatfrieden geben. Das wird die Ukraine nicht akzeptieren und wir auch nicht.
2: He tried to suggest that Germany had well had done this U-turn on defence, outlined some of those measures, saying that this has been a real watershed moment. And there was a bit of kind of colour, if you like. He started with an anecdote from the Thomas Mann novel, The Magic Mountain, because a man from Hamburg who comes here to Davos and he said. Well, I'm from Hamburg. But then he went on to make that analogy by saying that was written, you know, the, the, the thunderbolt with World War One, And then he made a parallel with what's happening now and um, that war in February 2022, that this is a very, very serious war. So, yeah, so it was, I mean, it's his opportunity to get in front of people. He talked about the changing need for energy and, and how he was going to bring business with him. But look, he wasn't probing the big question, which is, you know, how far is Germany? ahead when it comes to really getting off its dependency on Russian gas and the fact that any discussion of a ban on Russian gas, I think, is still a kind of a long way away.
5: Yeah, and it's it's really interesting that he came and said that because we, and we'll be playing this interview later, but we've been hearing from from Ukrainians and others who are getting pretty frustrated and see Germany as a key player who could move this discussion forward, especially as we go into the European Council summit next week to talk about the six sanctions package.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's one of the themes, I mean, we're we're now kind of reflecting on what this week was about. Yes, Ukraine dominated, but what do they actually get from this? You know, there was no pledges from the EU to speed up the enlargement process. In fact, you know, in fact, it's as strong as ever that from France and the big countries that that's nowhere on the cards. Even as we were talking here in Davos all week, the EU back in Brussels was trying to agree a six package of sanctions now going on for weeks. So, um, look, very little to show in terms of actual commitments, I think, to Ukraine.
5: And Jamil, what are some of the discussions that you think might continue beyond Davos?
6: Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the main takeaways is this discussion around food scarcity and around food insecurity. Uh, I had a very interesting interview with the head of a big fertilizer company, Yara International, and he was just explaining that it's not only the fact that Ukraine can't export its its this year's wheat harvest and this this year's uh, harvest because it's blockaded from from the sea. But also, that the big fertilizer companies in the world can't get the raw materials from Russia to create, you know, to make the fertilizers. And uh, more than half of the world's food supply relies on fertilizers from, from companies like this.
7: In, in, in parts of the world now, we see that farmers cannot afford input, uh, they, they cannot afford fertilizers. And, and when half of the world's population relies on food because of uh, fertilizer. You can imagine what that will mean for the coming harvest, and then we we, we could uh, start to to see a food availability issue as well.
6: That was really striking to me. I I hadn't quite appreciated that it's not just like Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe, is not able to export its crops. They're going to have to burn their crops this year because they can't physically export it over land. But also that, you know, countries that really, really depend on fertilizer can't get it. So this is a compounding uh, food crisis. It's, it's already here. Uh, and then if you throw in climate change and the effects of climate change, you look at the heat wave that's crossing through the, the subcontinent, India, Pakistan. Uh, you combine all these things together. There's this food scarcity problem now. And in a few months, it's going to be much, much worse. So that was really, for me, the thing that really, you know, I took away from this.
5: And the potential at the World Economic Forum is to align economic discussions and political discussions. Do you feel like, looking back over the week, do you feel like that happened?
6: Yeah, look, it it happens in pockets. There's a lot of good intention, I would say. But if you get a banker or a CEO uh, in a sort of quiet moment, unguarded moment, what they will tell you is that the value of Davos for them and frankly for journalists is the concentration of clients and uh, interview subjects for us. uh, People in one place who it would take you six months to fly around the world to meet all of these different people. They're all here for, you know, four days, incredibly concentrated. You do meetings from dawn till. The sun goes down, maybe then party a little bit. Uh, But that ability to meet with so many people in such a short period of time, as I say, for journalists, it's also extremely valuable. So I would say that's actually what this place is about. It's not, you know, the tagline is you know, committed to improving the state of the world. There's a bit of sanctimony, a bit of hypocrisy, a bit of kind of, uh, what do we say, virtue signaling that goes along with this place. In the end, it's about meeting lots of people in a very short space of time. Now, good can come out of that. Not so good can come out of that. I, I mean, I think you, Sarah, were, were pointing out some of the contradictions of this place, the in, internal inherent contradictions. You know, we're changing the state of the world by watching the Black Eyed Peas and dancing with Mark Carney and drinking champagne. Like, are we really improving the state of the world? Well, no, not really. But but you can, right? There are good things that come out of it as well and can come out of it, I'd say. Okay.
5: Yeah, you know, we just – Jamil, you gave us a little bit of a hint of uh, of uh, your evening plans last night. And um, I was at a party um, where the Chainsmokers were, were performing. Um, apparently, they were the last-minute substitute for Gwen Stefani. But fortunately, their stick is to just basically, like, play 90 seconds of, like, a popular song from whatever era and then, like, speed it up and then, like, switch to another song. So – but they – some of their choices – I don't know if they knew kind of what the crowd was here, or kind of what this event was about and what some of the tensions at this event were. But, you know, they were playing songs like, hey, it must be the money. Oh, God. This is – sorry, podcast listeners. They had to hear me sing. Um, you know, and earlier they were playing like, you know, like Queens, We Are the Champions, which is a fun song. But I don't know if like a, an activist were you know, filming that like at Davos, like that maybe wouldn't be the best luck.
2: I mean, it's just about, you know, NGOs and um, innovative businesses. I made a few of them, which were quite impressive, doing stuff on, on clean technology. It's about them basically working with capitalism. I mean, this is the centre of capitalism here. And they've decided going, you know what, we need to be here to get in front of these people um, and see can they channel some of that capital, some of that investment into what we're doing. And that's why they're here. Uh, and it, it sometimes works. It did strike me, actually, which I think we forget about when we're reporting in Brussels. You know, Germany is obviously the biggest country in the European Union, the most powerful. But as Scholz reminded us uh, during his speech, it's also one of the biggest industrial powers in the world. I mean, you know, what German business does, it, it has got huge impact. So, you know, it, that's the intersection between politics and economics. You know, if Germany can go a certain direction and bring business with it, well, then that could be very productive, whether it is clean energy, the new technology on cars or whatever, you know, that can ultimately uh, make a huge change.
5: Well, that's actually a f- perfect transition point into our next interviews. And we are all pretty much ready to collapse. So thanks so much for joining us one last time, Jamil, Suzanne. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, sir. For our next interview, we visited the Ukraine House. It's a separate space near the conference center devoted to cultural and political programs. And the security checks were intense. So was the buzzing energy. So you might hear some extra background noise in the interview with Paul Grode president of the Ukrainian World Congress.
4: Hi, I'm Paul Grodd. I'm the president of the Ukrainian World Congress, uh, which is an umbrella organization bringing together Ukrainian communities in over 65 countries around the world. And uh, we're a not-for-profit, and our objective is to represent the interests of the global Ukrainian diaspora. Davos is this year has been Ukraine, and so being at the epicenter here has been quite fascinating. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see the outpouring of support Uh, but we need to transcend from words to deeds, and uh, we need to see more leadership. We have to stop waiting for the Americans all the time to lead, and uh, I think this is a great opportunity for the European countries to take the leadership, And, uh, and we see a new resolve over the last several weeks to stand up to Russia, but we need to make bolder steps. We need to go much, much further, because right now, Russia is not suffering financially. The sanctions are not biting hard enough. And uh, that is not deterring Russia's war machine. And quite frankly, with the high gas prices, the state budget of Russia is very, is very well financed and the war effort is very well financed. And until this war stops, we're going to have the suffering, the war crimes, the deaths, the destruction that will have to be rebuilt. And there will be need to be EU funds dedicated to rebuilding. So the longer the war goes on, the bigger the, the bill is going to be, number one speaking very, you know, bluntly on that but the deaths, the tens of thousands of deaths, the suffering, the rapes, the, you know, all the human tragedy that is coming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that will continue. So we need to see stronger resolve on sanctions, stronger support militarily for Ukraine, because it is a very difficult war. Even though Ukraine is is holding back, they're incurring significant, significant losses. And so we need the European Union, we need countries like Germany and France to really step up and show that leadership in supporting Ukraine, both militarily and economically.
5: Mm Commission President Ursula von der Leyen actually told us that the gathering of EU leaders next week is not likely to come to a final agreement on the six sanctions package. What's your sense of what's holding things up and what message would you give to those national political leaders who are really at the core of hammering this out?
4: Well, there's their leaderly meetings we're expecting. They're going to talk also about U- Ukraine's EU candidacy. Uh, and that is something we are strongly advocating for as a, as a global organization which brings together Ukrainian communities in 65 countries around the world. We're very disappointed with that lack of resolve. I, I think it's coming from the fact that many European countries have not prepared for uh, and have not diversified in their energy policy. Energy policy is the biggest weak point in which Russia... Has exploited with many European countries, and uh, some countries have have seen this, like Poland, for example, and Croatia, and other countries who have become independent of Russian gas have sufficiently diversified. And uh, we need to see the Europe to, st- to step forward. And I think that's the biggest concern: is what happens if Russia cuts cuts off the gas supply. And Russia knows that, and they're continuing to exploit that. So we need to see, we need to see that leadership, and it really needs to come from Germany and France.
5: Mm-hmm. So you don't, think, you don't think Hungary is the problem?
4: Look, I think Hungary is a, s- a significant problem. But the reality is is that uh, Hungary will go along if Germany is saying this is where we're going. Uh, Orbán is going to be difficult regardless. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't overcome things like sanctions because H- Hungary did adopt the first five packages of sanctions. And if you've got strong leadership from the key countries in Europe, then they will come along.
5: We've also seen Ukrainians have to flee and head all over the world, head all over Europe. Obviously, we don't know how long this conflict is going to last, but what's your sense of to what extent people want to go home to Ukraine as opposed to becoming a part of the already large Ukrainian diaspora?
4: You know, it's... um... Very interesting because, uh, as I've been watching the various waves of immigration uh, since independence, and you could, you could sort of look at different waves. To date, many of them have been economic. Uh, today, these immigrants have fled because of fear for their lives. And um, all the refugees that I've met, many, many, many refugees, I've been on the Polish-Ukrainian border several times, uh, meeting them all over the world as I travel, they all say the same thing, we want to go home. Mm-hmm. And I've met many refugees who at first wanted to come to Canada, wanted to come to the United States, and they're still in Poland because they want to stay close. They say, you know, we want because we're going to come back. And even when there's an opportunity for them to go visit, Uh, they do that, right, when it's safe enough for them to go visit. So I find that this group of refugees want to return. And uh, also because many of them have left their sons, their fathers, their husbands.
5: What does Ukraine look like after the war, especially if it does have aspirations to joining the European Union?
4: so just to be clear we want to make it you know that we have to win the war first right so because i'm hearing in davos a lot of this discussion uh, you know among uh, business leaders about okay let's start talking about the positive story let's start talking about what does ukraine look like after the war uh, the rebuilding you know all the great economic prosperity all the business that we can do by rebuilding ukraine that's what is the buzz here in davos right now but we want to sort of a reality check, uh, that we got to win the war first, and, uh, and, and that's got to be the focus. But uh, Ukraine, prior to the war, was struggling with a, I'll call it a, a transforming from a, a Soviet past, a very corrupt past, where they were taking very bold moves to change, because it's one thing to talk about it, but what do you do to really to change that? Uh, and they've made very concrete steps, especially in digitization. So they're digitizing everything so it's, it's much more transparent. Uh, the, the, the ability to, you know, if you need a special document and you have to go to somebody and pay a bribe to get that special permit or whatever it is, or a building permit, now through a digitization process, that all that disappears. There's lots lots to do, but they're certainly in the right direction. So the other part of it is going to be the, the green economy and really focusing on Ukraine being an energy superpower. Now that there's an interconnection now between Europe, uh, the rest of Europe and Ukraine, uh, electricity interconnection, mm-hmm. that's also going to be a great source. So Ukraine will be a powerhouse once we get out of this war. But uh, first we have to win the war.
5: Now let's briefly switch gears and venues. So here at Davos, the action is spread out at different hotels around town. To make life a little smoother, Davos runs a network of vans to shuttle people around. I found myself in a van with Jeremy Farrar, director of a major philanthropy called the Wellcome Trust. He was an influential voice in the global response to the coronavirus pandemic, and I asked him how things are going now. Where are we now with the coronavirus? We're in a pretty good position. I mean, you, you, you can't compare, um, where are we, May 2022 with May 2020. I mean, change is remarkable. My two concerns, one is um, politicians and society are assuming a rosy outcome. Mm-hmm. And whilst I think that is actually the most likely outcome, it's not the only possible outcome. And... Some of us maybe you know, certainly in the science community, the research community have got to prepare for whatever comes, mm-hmm. because we can't go back to May 2020. And the second great unknown is China. Yeah. I, I don't believe China, I don't, I don't believe a zero COVID policy is sustainable. And at some point, China will go through a big epidemic. Mm-hmm. And the population in China has a very different immunity to the rest of the world. So that's a big concern. Yeah. Do you get the sense that we've learned the lessons in terms of pandemic preparedness? Not yet. Thank you very much. We'll be back after a quick break. Stay with us. And now a message from Cisco.
1: Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. An inclusive future isn't possible without a livable planet. Together, we must focus on what makes the most significant impact on the environment, addressing climate change, driving a circular economy and being responsible stewards of the planet's limited resources. Cisco enables customers to reduce their own environmental footprints using technology and supports innovators to develop solutions that respond to the consequences of a changing climate. Sustainability and climate change are intertwined with many of the biggest challenges facing the world today. It will take all of us to deliver an inclusive and sustainable future.
3: A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade.
5: There are a lot of a particular type of men at Davos, rich, powerful, often full of hot air. It's to these men that Nadia Murad came to make her case. Just 29 years old, she's already been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her work advocating for victims of sexual violence in war. A quick note, Murad occasionally refers to IDP camps. Those are refugee camps for internally displaced people.
8: My name is Nadia Murad. I am a, a survivor of gender based violence. I'm from the ZD community in Iraq. I'm also the president of Nadia's initiative. I've uh, been working in the past eight years. Uh, as you know, in 2014, ISIS committed a genocide against my community, and they took over 6,000 women and children into sexual slavery. And including myself my my family members my sisters nieces so after I escaped I've been advocating on behalf of survivors of sexual violence uh, focusing on uh, you know justice accountability prevention uh, working with the UN with the European Union to make sure that we provide justice for survivors hold perpetrators accountable and also focusing on the homeland of the UCD people, uh, rebuilding uh, the basic services and working with the the local community.
5: And what has your agenda been here at Davos? Who have you been meeting with and what's the message that you've been delivering to them?
8: You know, it it was uh, so important for me to be uh, invited uh, to Davos here. I've been here before But I've had had, uh, some good discussions with some governments like the government of Ukraine, uh, the government of uh, Switzerland, uh, with the president and the media and other, other, uh, you know, panels. You know, uh, there are so many good things that are being discussed here. But sometimes it's so important to have survivors themselves here to tell them that there are more and more survivors out there. They need support. They uh, they need uh, you know long term uh, sustainable solutions in in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, in Ethiopia, and so many other places. So uh, it, it it was a, a good opportunity for me to to focus on on the uh, conflict related sexual violence to talk about the work that we are doing. Um, through NADIS initiative, but also uh, the Global Survivors Fund that I have co-founded with Dr. Dennis McQuege, which is uh, providing interim reparations to survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, and then uh, you know also working with governments to improve their own uh, programs of reparations. But you know here it's it there are there were discussions about inclusion and and gender equality. But you know the needs for women are, are different, and, and and one size uh, cannot fit all. Answer uh, the, the needs for survivors of of sexual violence or women in in Iraq are different from the needs of, of women here in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, there we cannot even talk about uh, workplace jobs and and equal pay because people don't have jobs. Women don't have jobs. They can't they can't go to to school and. You know, I just want to share an, an, a very like personal experience. I I was raised by a single mother, and she raised eleven children on her own on a small farm. She never attended school. She never had an uh, access to you know any jobs outside the farm. And because she was a single mother, she was always discriminated by the society, by the government. There was no laws and or institutions to protect her rights. I mean, we, the life was very poor, but she helped us to have a dignified life. And she was able to only send one of her children to school, uh, to high school. And after all of that, she was killed by ISIS because she was a woman, because of her identity. So it is so important when we talk about women's rights, we we should remember that there are different needs for different for different places. One
5: challenge is that even when people do survive this sort of sexual violence as a weapon of war, it can be very hard to hold the perpetrator accountable. Do you feel like there's any improvement in that? Has has technology
8: been helpful? You know, ISIS never hides its intention of using women uh, as a weapon of war. And after many survivors escaped from captivity. I worked you know, with my lawyer, Mal Cloney, with the UN member states, and we were able to establish a UN team investigating in ISIS crimes. And they were able to collect thousands of evidence, uh, testimonies. There were messages between, you know, uh, ISIS members uh, texting each other about uh, selling of the women, buying w- women and girls and all this evidence and and the eighty, you know, three mass graves that we have discovered, including a, a mass graves of uh, eighty three women, uh, including my own mother, and you know all this evidence, and we were we we have not been able to hold them accountable. There was only one case uh, uh, last year; a German court convicted an ISIS member of genocide, but this was only one case. You know, this is not enough, and for. For survivors, it's hard to heal without justice. When we hold them accountable, we are sending a clear message to other groups who are, you know, uh, willing to harm more people. We are telling them that, you know, you will not... There is no impunity. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, there is a culture of impunity, and that's why we are seeing that the same pattern is has been repeated again and again. Mm-hmm.
5: And so is there... Do you have a sense that there's something that um, the European Union can, can do to, to help?
8: There is a lot. You know, there were thousands of, of European nationals who joined ISIS and, and in Iraq and Syria, and they committed genocide crimes. They raped and, and, and tortured women and children. And now no country is ready to do as what Germany did. You know, Iraqis are saying that they have thousands of of european nationals and nobody it's like no one is willing to take them back and hold them accountable i i think this is one of the basic things that the european countries can deliver justice for for those who you know who were uh, hurt by european nationals and you know the the other thing that europe european countries are are already working in iraq but unfortunately they are not working with survivors. They are, we have to listen to survivors. We have to help people to go back to their own homelands. You know, for the Yazidis, this August, it will be eight years since ISIS did this to them, and 60% of them are still displaced inside their own country. And I always tell the European leaders when, when we talk about the situation of Yazidis, there is only two sustainable ways to help Yazidis. To help them go back to their homeland and provide them with you know basic services or to give them asylum in here in somewhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. But as you know, there are millions of refugees are, are in around the world and we know no country is ready to bring all these people. But when we keep them in, in, in IDP camps, we are, you know, uh, adding a uh, displacement at extra vulnerabilities. And especially for women and girls, they don't have basic privacy. They, they, they don't have basic uh, uh, services, no education. That is what I am doing, you know, with the European country to help, you know, shift their focus from, you know, temporary focus uh, to Sinjar. And I was able to work with the uh, President Macron to build a new, brand new hospital in Sinjar. And with the, uh, other governments like Germany to rebuild farms, with the government of Belgium to actually rebuild the first school in Jar. And now I, I'm seeing, you know, my, my community for the first time, a generation of, stud- of children are going to school. But there is much more needed, you know, uh, but we are, what we are doing is just us. Our government has done nothing to help us. So we need the the European Union, you know, to, to help us more.
5: Our last interview features Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Global Insider Newsletter, in conversation with James Rogers. His company, Appeal, makes an edible coating for foods. And as we look ahead to a growing food crisis... Rogers shared his thoughts on food sustainability and the roadblocks he's facing in Europe.
7: The infrastructure that underpins our food system is is not a really a living system today. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of reasons mm-hmm. that uh, these disruptions that, that happen ripple yeah. and affect so many mm-hmm. people. And so by building a, a supply chain, which actually is adaptive and yep. and is taking cues from the things that it's transporting, mm-hmm. we have the opportunity to make sure that, that less food goes to waste and, and as a result, more people are eating. So the way that appeal works mm-hmm. is we create a, a plant-based coating that we apply mm-hmm. to the surface of fruits yep. and vegetables, and it allows the fruit to last two or
0: three times longer. Wow. Okay, that's cool. I was hearing yesterday about a microbe that could eventually replace fertilizers. You know, that it, it would in effect, suck nitrates out of the air and therefore do the job of fertilizers.
7: It's the same idea. We Mm. steal the solution directly from nature. This is exactly the same solution that nature has been using for hundreds of millions of years to protect things like lemons and oranges. And we take that same exact material and we apply it to the things like mangoes and cucumbers and it transfers that ability for uh, those things to, to have that same, same superpower.
0: And so who does that make as your customer?
7: So, so our customers are the largest grocers in the US, mm-hmm. uh, Germany, Denmark, yeah. Norway, uh, in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, Spain. Yeah. And those retail customers find that when they offer plant-based protection to their shoppers, not only do they waste less in stores, not only do they need less plastic, Uh, not only do their consumers have a a better experience, but those benefits are then available to the supply chain as well. And today, and one of the reasons that that I'm here, is to meet with some of the EU commissioners about the lack of availability of the product in Europe today. Not because of any sort of safety concerns, Mm -hmm. but rather because there's no labeling requirements in the EU for these types of products. And so Mm -hmm. uh, their position has been, well... If consumers wouldn't expect this type of innovation, then we're not going to authorize it. And so that ability to eliminate plastic on... That is crazy. Like the EU's entire policy is no yeah.
0: single-use plastic. You are to bring a solution to ensure there is no single-use plastic in an entire... The solutions in, line uh, in use today okay. in,
7: in in the United States. Okay. Um, the same, te- same exact technology is being okay. used in the EU for things like avocados and mangoes mm-hmm. and oranges and etc., Um, And we're asking to extend that uh, into categories like cucumbers. Mm -hmm. The amount of single-use plastic that we'll eliminate is absolutely enormous. But we're we're jammed up right now.
0: And is that a real problem? I mean, obviously, it's real. You wouldn't take meetings that weren't going to solve a problem. But is it a live problem in the sense that... Uh, a supermarket chain has actually said to you, we love what you're doing, but we can't take this risk or is this uh, preemptive? You just want to sort of cover all the bases uh, so that no one takes you to court down the line. The, the, the supermarkets that we work with are championing
7: this solution. They're going to their local, uh, local le- legislatures yep. and saying, we want to extend appeal to mm-hmm. things like tomatoes, things yep. like peppers, things like cucumbers now. Yeah. And we we just have not been able to get the attention
0: uh, to this issue. Okay. The solution's on the doorstep, uh, and oh, so Franz Timmerman, if you're listening, Franz, it's been a while, but we are getting the message to you right now that you need to take this up. He obviously is the king, king of, of preventing single-use plastic. I met, I met Franz, Franz last night. And, All right, okay, uh, I'm and, worried. I'm, I'm sorry, too late. I'm so. too late.
7: James beat me to the punch. All right. Well, yeah. Let's let's uh, eliminate the use of single-use plastic. Nature nature has a much better way, and uh, it's it's on our doorstep. Uh, we just need some attention to the
0: issue, and we'll get it solved. You heard it here first on Davos Confidential.
5: And that's a wrap on this edition of EU Confidential, our final podcast from Davos. You can catch up on all our interviews and misadventures at the World Economic Forum by listening back to the past week's episodes. And if you haven't already, subscribe to EU Confidential on your favorite podcast app. Your regular host, Andrew Gray, will be back with you next week. Special thanks to James Randerson and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, who we hope will finally get to enjoy some fondue tonight after a marathon of podcast editing. And thanks to you for listening.